for me, inclusion is the more important aspect to focus on. You know, how do you bring people into the organization and your ways of working that allow them to give of their best? And we can't do that if we make judgments of, well, you don't fit in around here before we've actually tried to explore ways of helping people to fit in around here. Hello, and welcome to the Leader Insights series, the platform designed to uncover the secrets to career success and gain real insight from senior figures across the food and drink industry. I'm your host, Jonathan O'Hagan, and today I'm pleased to be joined by Ali Yates. Ali is a director, an author, a leadership coach, and a self-confessed lifelong learning consultant. Perhaps best known for creating courage and confidence in leaders at all levels, Ali inspires leadership self-belief through customized learning experiences, team facilitation, and coaching that focuses on behaviors combined with neuroscience and academic rigor. Ali has almost three decades of talent development, leadership learning, and frontline business experience gained from across multiple industries across the world. Ali is also the author of Utter Confidence, which gives a superb insight into behavioral analysis and how what you say and do influences your effectiveness in business. I'm really looking forward to chatting with Ali as her sweet spot is talent management and development. She's got an impressive track record of working with CEOs and business leaders, creating award-winning learning experiences for people. Ali, it's an absolute pleasure to pin you down for a chat. Welcome to the show. How are you? Thank you very much, Jonathan, and thank you for inviting me. Uh, Today, I'm feeling great. The first signs of spring are coming, and that must be a positive thing. It's a good feeling, isn't it? When the sun's shining, it's amazing how much of an impact it has on our our psyche, doesn't it? After what's felt like an awful long winter at the moment. Yes, indeed. Yeah, good. Well, I'm really pleased to to pin you down, Ali. I've, I've not known you that long, and We were introduced by mutual acquaintance, weren't we? Friend of the show, Gavin Bowne. I've always wanted to say that, friend of the show. Um, So how do you know Gavin? Tell us about your your connection to him then. Well, Gavin is the global head of R&D at Barry Calabell, the world's leading chocolate and cocoa manufacturer. And I've worked with Barry Calabell for the last 17 years. And in fact, very recently took on an interim role for them as the global vice president of talent. And that's how I met Gavin. Yeah. What a great organization Barry Calabau is. It must have been quite a journey you've been on with them. I mean, they're a market leader in what they do, but that must have been fascinating to work with a business of that size and scale. Yeah, it's one of the reasons why I've continued to work with them, because there's always something exciting happening in Barry Calabau, or BC as it's known for short. And it's very much a growth company. And of course, a growth company requires their people to grow too. So there's a lot of investment in their talent and how to build that talent so it's fit for purpose and the requirements of the business. Yeah. In fact, there's probably another mutual acquaintance of ours, Ali, a previous Barry Calabau employee in Elizabeth Langley. And I still remember a quote, something she said, which I think so true that people are your real point of difference. You know, anyone can replicate a product or a service, but no one can replicate your people. And I thought that was so true, so poignant, really. And and I guess that leads nicely into some of the work you do. Indeed. I worked with Elizabeth when she first joined Barry Calabau and have followed her in her career. 
And in particular, I was working with her in the whole business development area. And one of the things that we discussed there was, you know, as a salesperson or as a key account manager, your main point of difference is potentially your product, but is actually going to be you and your behavior and how you show up with the customer. And that's a key differentiator. Yeah, brilliant. Now, what might be useful, Ali? I've known you for a little while. You're a fascinating person. There's lots of areas to your skill set. But would you mind just giving us a bit of an introduction on, on who you are, but also what you do? Because as I said in the introduction, you cover a number of different areas. So in your own words, how do you describe what you do? Well, you referred to me being a lifelong learner in the introduction. And I think that's absolutely an apt description because where I started off is very different to where I've ended up now. So one of my first jobs was as a DJ on a radio station in Vancouver, very, very far away from where I am now. So how did I get here? Through some fantastic opportunities. I just happened to be in the right place at the right time to work with some real leaders in their fields, like Neil Rackham, who is the guy behind Spin Selling, a seminal work on sales and business development, through then getting an opportunity to work at Coopers and Lybrand, which then became PwC, and really getting into the world of consulting and getting access to lots of different organizations, different people, and different countries and cultures. But where I am now and have been for the last 17 or 18 years is as an independent consultant. And I tend to work in in three main areas. One is that I do executive coaching, and in fact, not just coaching for executives, but all levels within organizations. The second is that I I focus on learning experiences, and those learning experiences tend to be in the area of leadership and management development and also in business development. So how you go to market and the kind of skills that are required to build a successful sales force. And then also I do a lot of work with intact teams and how to help them to become high-performing teams. Brilliant. And I'll circle back, Ali, to pick your brains on, you know, general career advice, really, because it sounds like, you know, you've operated in lots of different markets, lots of different environments. So I'm sure you'll have a lot to to offer in that sense as well. But I I suppose I'd love to touch upon your book, if I can, Ali, as well, uh, Utter Confidence, which I read. I was really, really impressed as someone who was familiar a little bit with behavior, behavioral analysis, but not not a great deal. I, I thought it was great the way It's a brilliant introduction to behavioral analysis and it's laid out in a very easy way to understand the concepts of it, but also also the benefits and the impact it can have within not just an organization, but for individuals. I also thought it was very current in terms of some of the, what I perceive to be really key, important drivers in business today, actually. I know behavioral analysis in itself has been around for a number of years, but I thought it was, you know, probably as important today as ever before. I don't know if you'd agree with that. You know, when we look at things like effective communication and establishing presence and fostering creativity and influencing, these are really critical things today, aren't they? Yeah, I think the thing about behaviour analysis is that it's relatively timeless. It may be to help the uninitiated, I should explain what it is. Behaviour analysis is a very simple way of capturing everything that comes out of your mouth and codifying it in some way. And why do we do that? Well, because I've been involved in a lot of research that 
tests out or, or seeks to find out what it is that the skilled performers do compared with the average or the unskilled performers. And from that research, creating models of success. So it's those models of success that have supported my work with sales teams, for example, or with organizations in terms of how effective teams work. And it's teasing those out those skillful behaviors and helping people to understand just how they can broaden their own behavioral repertoire by building those skills in and using them to different effect. So that's what behavior analysis is. And I think, you know, in almost any situation that you find yourself in, if you are consciously making a choice about your behavior, it's something that you can change, unlike personality, which for most of us is pretty hardwired. Yeah. And I'm really keen to drill down on just some of the areas while I've got you so we can get some real practical advice that people can start implementing as early as today. But to start at the beginning with it all, what are the common problems you tend to see, Ali? You know, when you go into an organization for the first time, what are the common pitfalls that they're falling into? What are the common issues that you help them ultimately to improve on? So if I were to take working with a sales team as an example, I quite often accompany salespeople into the field and find that they fall into the trap of talking a lot about their product and their organization, as opposed to leading with questions and uncovering customer needs and then developing those needs in a, in a way that enables them to make very persuasive and impactful benefit statements that help the customer to think, yeah, actually, I really do need this. Another example would be working with sales managers who find it very difficult to let go of the fact that they were once really good salespeople themselves. So they want to get into that directing and let me tell you what it is that you need to do. But of course, we don't learn particularly well if we're told what to do. And so again, one of the keys to success there is leading with questions and using more of a coaching style, which can be quite challenging when you've been an expert in your field. And maybe a third example would be those meeting environments might be a boardroom, might be a team meeting where you see one or maybe a couple of people dominating and other people don't have an opportunity to have their say. And having that understanding, seeing how the airtime is spent, understanding how your behavior is impacting other people can be very powerful. And again, one of the great things about behavior analysis is it's objective. It's an objective measure of what happened in the meeting. So you don't get into any of that stuff that people find a bit uncomfortable, you know, or he said, she said, and it gets a bit defensive and emotional. It helps bring a nice objective perspective to what's happening. And people like that. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. Well, well, I suppose when you can back anything up with a bit of data and a bit of rigor, it creates that element of, you know, the, no, this is the situation. And, and actually, if we do this, it will, you know, the output will be, will be X, Y, and Z. So if we look at things like effective communication, Ali, because as you said, there in a meeting environment, we've all been in those meetings where we feel like we achieve nothing. We feel like we don't have either a voice or someone has too much of a voice. So what are the tips I can prize from you in terms of things that people can start to think about? To, to become more effective in terms of their communications in those, in, in those environments. Okay, let me tease out a few that might be helpful for people. 
Well, first of all, if you're the person who has organized the meeting, it's very difficult for you to be both the chair and have a contribution on the content. It's hard to do both of those things effectively because it means you're dominating the time it takes to manage the process, but you're also wanting to have an input. So it ups the level of contribution that you have. And what we know about effective team meetings is that there tends to be shared level of airtime across the people that are in the meetings. Of course, there's some exceptions to that, but generally shared airtime is what we need to be aiming for. And so if you are that person who's chairing the meeting, it's best to focus on managing the process, on taking people through the agenda, bringing people in, ensuring that everybody has an opportunity to have their say. And if you really have a vested interest in the content, then you have a couple of options. You could talk to people before the meeting so that you socialize your views and allow other people to raise them during the meeting. Or if it's a particular agenda topic where you really want to have your personal input, then ask somebody else to manage the process, either for that part of the meeting or indeed maybe for the entire meeting. So that's one thing you can do. That's really useful, Ali. So essentially the focus is on the process. Of course, the outcome's important, but the focus is on the process, which ultimately, I guess, leads to a better outcome because everyone's played their their part. Is that is that correct? Certainly. Managing the process helps a meeting to be more effective because you've got somebody who is aware of what the agenda is, who's ensuring that you've covered all of those things, that everybody has had an opportunity to have their say and that you're finishing on time. And we'd all love meetings to finish on time, I'm sure. A counterbalance to that or something that is equally important is how people behave in those meetings. And and if I could share one tip with people, it would be to ask more questions So often over the course of my career, I've worked with teams and I'm observing them operating. And what I see happen is competition with ideas and competition with opinions. So people adopt a position and they believe their position. It's it's lovely to see that passion and that self-belief. But of course, if I approach a conversation with the mindset that actually what I've got in mind is, is right, then I'm going to be shutting off the possibilities of exploring something different and something potentially even better with other people in the meeting. So I think the opportunity to explore, engage, have real dialogue actually adds a lot more value than just pitting my opposing view. Yeah, I think that's really useful. So essentially appointing a chair is a great place to start. Yeah, no, that's really, really useful. And in terms of the presence bit, Ali, because I I guess maybe at the heart of this, there's a bit of a confidence issue if people can't establish their presence in a meeting. But yeah, establishing presence in a meeting, again, any particular tips? And I know these will be a bit more generic and, and your work is very much consultative, working with people on individual levels. But is there some generic tips that will help people try to establish their presence a bit better in in that meeting environment? If you're a quieter person and you want to get into the meeting, it's not enough really to rely on your timing. So very simply, there are three things that you can do. Uh, The first thing you can do is give some kind of nonverbal indication that you want to get in 
to the conversation. Mm. So if we're all sitting around a table, for example, you may lean forward and put your hand out in front of you uh, or just raise your hand to indicate that you want to get in. And at the moment, while we're working virtually, of course, a raised hand is a great thing to do. And we can do that using many of the technology platforms we're using on online meetings too. It's the the, uh, digital talking stick, isn't it, Ali, in many ways? That's right. That's absolutely (laughs) right. Passing the talking stick. The second thing that you can do is to use something I call a behavior label. And a behavior label is announcing what it is that you're going to say next. So if I were to say, uh, Jonathan, let me ask you a question. That's a behavior label that announces that I'm going to ask you a question. What that does in a meeting environment is it causes an opportunity for people to stop and listen to what it is that you're saying. And then the third step is you can go ahead and ask your questions. Mm -hmm. So it's a nonverbal it's a behavior label and then following up with the behavior that you have labeled. Brilliant. It creates this space, I suppose, as well, doesn't it, to, like you say, signal, stop. And you've not got to suddenly rush through what you're going to say because you're worried someone else is going to dominate that particular space. But you've created that space. So, yeah, that's brilliant. Ali, that's really good. Um The bit I particularly loved in your book as well is when you talked about fostering creativity, Mm. which I certainly observe the best businesses create these environments of, I suppose, safety around creation of ideas, the idea of, you know, it's okay to fail, et cetera, et cetera. So talk to me a bit about that and your thoughts around how do people create this environment of more creativity? Do you know when you were talking then it took me right back to one of my consulting experiences when I was working with the then Orange Telecom. And in their London HQ, they had something called the Imaginarium. And it was a room that was just decked out. Well, it was an entire floor, actually, that was decked out in relaxing workspaces with all sorts of things to play with. And it was where minds were allowed to run free. And what I've learned in my studying of neuroscience is that the part of the brain where we imagine and where we get creative is, of course, a very different part of the brain where we analyze and where we evaluate. And these two can't work at the same time. So what it means for organizations when we want to get creative and for individuals is that we have to create the space just to let the imagination run wild. Mm. And okay, we might not have an imaginarium, but creating the space where we can allow people to to play, to experiment, to generate wild ideas, to, you know, to go for a long walk and talk about possibilities and separate that from the evaluating of the ideas and the judgment and the decision-making and the filtering that requires a very different part of the brain. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really interesting. I, I do see certainly organisations that foster that environment of creativity. They're the ones that typically have that competitive edge. And you'll explain this far better than me, Ali, but it, I, I guess at the heart of it, it's creating an overarching culture, isn't it, of allowing people to sometimes make mistakes in not a drastic way, but making mistakes and actually being okay because there'll be those moments of magic. Another area, Ali, I really, really enjoyed about your book is you talk about the power of influence really and how to influence other people. Now, 
influence is something that I suppose is relevant in many people's jobs, whether you're a marketeer, a salesperson. But again, coming back to that meeting environment, it's so important. So again, any advice where people can start to think about their influencing skills and how they can raise their game in that sense? Well, most of us through our education, and this, this is particularly true of the Western world, is that we're taken through an education where we are uh, kind of convinced or brainwashed that logic is persuasive. So if I just set out the facts for you, that will be enough. But I'd just ask anyone to think about when you make significant buying decisions or decisions about what you're going to prioritize in your business, how often do you make those decisions purely based on facts as opposed to a gut feel or a sense of what's right or emotionally whether it fits with your values or is aligned with the organization's purpose? And so the ability to be able to persuade through really understanding an individual, an organization, requires us to be able to lead with questions and questions that are really designed to uncover what it is that makes people tick, that what it is that keeps them awake at night, what the implications of that might be for them, what value they're looking to create. Understanding the answers to those sorts of questions allow us to be much more influential than simply um, pushing pushing information. Yeah, there's not a one style fits all, if I'm hearing you correctly. It's through powerful questioning, uncovering what's important to that person, and then you can assess and influence from there, essentially, if I'm hearing you correctly, Ali. Yeah, I mean, one of the best pieces of research that's been done in this area was by a couple of academics called Falber and Yukel, and they identified nine different persuasion styles or influencing styles. But more than that, they looked at those styles in terms of how much resistance they generated and how much commitment they generated. The two styles that scored most highly in terms of commitment and lowest in terms of resistance are firstly, the kind of impassioned speech a bit like the, you know, Martin Luther King, I have a dream that really helped to inspire people and get them behind a movement. And the second is the more consultative style, which is around leading with questions. And if you contrast that with the way that we're typically educated to influence, which is a much more kind of opinion reason led, that has a much lower level of commitment and a much higher level of resistance. Yeah, yeah, it's fascinating stuff. And one of the things, Ali, that I see businesses, leaders, hiring managers work hard at at the moment is creating creating strong connections with their people and amongst their teams. And I'm fascinated just to get your thoughts, especially at the moment where we're all working more remote than ever. What are the sort of things you've done with the clients you've worked with to help them create greater connection with their people? So it goes back to something that we were talking about earlier, separating task and process, but also engaging with people. So if you think about a typical meeting, especially these days where our entire calendar from the moment we arrive at our desk to the moment we leave is full of back-to-back meetings if we're really unlucky. And I see that happening a lot in the organizations I'm working with. So, of course, in this jam-packed agenda, there's a real temptation to jump straight into the task 
We've got a limited amount of time together. We've got to get something sorted. And we just push on with the job at hand. And what we neglect is the connection with the people, the ability to check in and find out how they're doing. And the more we neglect the people, the more isolated they will feel and the more disconnection there will be to the manager and to the organization. So a lot of the focus at the moment with teams is around how do you create that connection? And and one way of doing that is to make sure that you have something that's called a check-in. So at the beginning of each meeting, you're asking people proactively, you know, tell me what's on your mind today. So that if there's anything that's distracting them, they can just articulate that. Or you might have a slightly different nature of check-in where you might say to somebody, tell me something that you're happy about or tell me something that you're really pleased about this weekend or what are you most looking forward to? Just something that allows you to connect with people as people rather than mm, jumping straight into task. Yeah, again, it's creating space, isn't it, for people. You know, I, I, I was speaking to a client the other day and one thing they do Every Monday morning on a Zoom call, they all have a competition to see who's had the most boring weekend. And it's, it's tapping into that, yeah, let's not jump straight into work. Let's spend a bit of time. You know, we're all going through challenges in various different ways, but let's create some space and time to recognize that, have a bit of fun along the way. And some other people that I know they've, they've insisted on, you know, going out for a walk and actually walking and talking at the same time over a, a meeting or, or a catch up or check in as you label it. So yeah, I think that's a really good point, creating the space, making the time for that touch point really. And then it leads into, I guess, trust, et cetera, et cetera, greater connection. Yeah. Yeah. And that sort of connection that you get, If you're in an office environment, it can often happen just by default. It's those shared moments at the coffee machine or it's going for lunch with somebody. And you just have that opportunity to talk about you and stuff that matters to you and who you are. In our Zoom environment at the moment, that's much more challenging. So it's almost as a manager, you've really got to have your antennae up and operating superbly to make sure that you are tuning in on that people wavelength much more than you would do if if we're in that kind of daily interactive environment. Yeah, I think tuning in is a great phrase. And I I suspect it's something we all took for granted before, Ali. Actually, did people purposely create the time and space before this pandemic to really check in with people in terms of their well-being, mental, physical, etc.? It's heightened at the moment, obviously. A lot of people are talking about it. Hopefully with this pandemic, Ali, maybe it's, it's a good thing that's going to come out the back of it in terms of as a business leader, yes, it's about work and delivering, but a big part of that is the, the well-being of the people and creating that time and space to do those check-ins, as you call it, is, is fundamental, isn't it, in terms of harvesting connection, trust, etc. I'm hopeful that there'll be a lot of silver linings that come out of what's been uh, a very challenging and sometimes quite painful experience for people. But of course, the, the wisdom of hindsight requires some time to elapse. We can put in place some quick insights and quick fixes as we go along and demonstrating that we're learning. But I think the real insights will come, you know, a year or two down the line. Yeah. And as ever with these things, I think the real shame would be the things that we have learned 
if in three, five years, we don't keep up some of the good stuff, if we revert back, I think that'll be a real shame, won't it? Listen, I'm keen to pick your brains around talent acquisition, Ali, big part of my world. Um, I know you've spent a lot of time in this area at a, a number of different levels, but particularly a senior level. And one of the things that I see happen all too often is people people recruit in their own image. People recruit mini-me's. They gravitate towards people that they like and get on with. How do we avoid that from everything that you see and, and work on? How do we help people avoid falling into that trap of recruiting very like-minded people who, and I guess part B, and I'm keen to pick your brains on this, it does tap into this diversity piece. But yeah, let's focus on that first bit. How do we avoid falling into that trap of recruiting very like-minded people all the time? I mean, what you're describing there is what the psychologists call affinity bias. Uh, And of course, if you have a brain, you're biased. We're all biased in Mm -hmm. some way. And indeed, I have been one of those managers earlier on in my career who was guilty of recruiting a lot of people who were just like me, who shared my values because, wow, did we have a good time at work. (laughs) But actually, the rest of the organization didn't feel so positive about us. And that was a real aha moment for me when I learned about that. Affinity bias you can tackle in lots of different ways. So right from the stage where you are selecting people, and I think lots of organizations are very good at this now, you know, candidates' names don't appear, candidates' age doesn't appear. They remove a lot of those telltale signs that allow someone who's reading the CV to go, oh, yeah, yeah, I like that. Oh, yeah, you know, oh, went to the same place as me. Oh, yeah, interested in that. Yes, so am I. So I think we're getting really good at that. I think one of the things that I don't see happening as much in talent acquisition or for that matter in talent development is that we're not really testing for those indicators of success, what I call measures of potential that will allow you to to really be able to hire for attitude rather than credentials. There's a great quote in in the book, Good to Great, by uh, James Collins. Jim Collins. Jim Collins, yeah. You know, where he talks about the importance or the, you know, the high-performing organizations hired for attitude rather than skill, because skill is something that you can teach, but attitude is much harder. And I really try my work with organizations to bring that certainly into the development piece you know, how do we assess the potential of our people? But also I think it's really important to bring into the talent acquisition piece as well and to test for that as we recruit people. Definitely. I I know we've spoken about this before, Ali, and it's something that I'm deeply passionate about in terms of when we talk about fit, you know, typically recruitment doesn't go wrong because you don't hire the right skills and experience. It goes wrong because of the wrong behavioral fit. And it's not to say people are good or bad. It's just every individual environment has its unique set of cultures, values, et cetera. And it's about that matching job on behaviors, not saying skills and experience isn't important here, but I think the focus absolutely where people get it really right. And that long-term fit should be about behaviors. And there's some wonderful tools and assessment products out there. I partner with McQuaig, who I think do a, a fantastic job. But yeah, it's, it's spot on what you say in terms of that behavioral fit. 
And is there anything else, Ali, for you? Because you spent a lot of time in this area. Is there anything else that can really, really improve people's talent acquisition capabilities? Obviously, we're focused on behaviours, but is there anything else people can do that, that you try and encourage business leaders and companies you work with, that you encourage them to do? I think one of the keys to unlocking success in, in recruitment is actually equipping the frontline recruiters, so that you know the managers and the leaders that are involved in recruitment, with an ability to understand things like how their bias will influence their decision making, what it is that we should be testing for, how best to test for it. You know, if you don't equip people with that basic level of capability, they will just go into an interview that's a conversation or, as I've witnessed sometimes, just a monologue where they talk about the organisation and what a great place it is to work and the poor candidate leaves the room thinking, oh, well, I didn't get a chance to answer any of my questions. Yeah, you make a really good point, actually. You know, interviewing well, it's not easy to do. There is an element of getting skilled, getting trained, etc., so you make a really good point there, actually. That's something that frontline managers, whatever level, could could certainly help themselves to invest in doing exactly that. But if we go back to what you were saying earlier about, I think I'd describe it as the kind of chemistry fit between a candidate and an organisation. That's really important. But I'd also challenge the organisation about its ability to include difference. Mm. And sometimes organizations spit people out on the premise that, oh, they didn't really fit with our culture. Mm. I challenge them to say, well, how much of it was that they didn't fit with the culture versus how much the individuals in the organization didn't make space for them to give of their best? And I think, you know, you raised the question about diversity as a topic. And I, and I think for me, inclusion is the more important Mm. aspect to focus on. You know, how do you bring people into the organization and your ways of working that allow them to give of their best? And we can't do that if we make judgments of, well, you don't fit in around here before we've actually tried to explore ways of helping people to fit in around here. Yeah, yeah, that's a really good, a really good point. Ali, absolutely. It's a big topic at the moment, diversity and inclusion. And I know those two things are different, diversity and then inclusion. But are you doing more and more work in that area at the moment? Because it is it is such a, a hot topic right now. You know, the data is clear. It's proven now that more diverse boards and teams typically as an output are better. You know, they perform better. So, yeah, you're doing more work in that area now. Where I tend to do my work on the DNI agenda, as it were, is actually with teams and helping them to create more inclusive environments. And that's around the quality of the dialogue that they have in, in a team environment. And also now overlaying remote working and how you get that inclusion in a remote working setting. Now, Ali, of course, I couldn't have you on the podcast without talking about leadership and what good leadership looks like. You've worked with a number of businesses in different parts of the world. So in your opinion, your observation, what do some of the best leaders you've worked with, what are the traits, what are the attributes that they that they have in common, in your opinion? So I think over my many years now, I would say that there's there's no one right answer. Different qualities are required for 
different situations, different contexts and circumstances. But I think the sorts of things that I have seen have the most impact on the people in the organisation are qualities like integrity, honesty. I think a preparedness to make tough decisions. If I go back to the book we mentioned earlier, Good to Great, you know, there's another fantastic line in that from Jim Collins where they talk about the high-performing organizations liberate rather than terminate people from their employment. And, And I think the ability as a boss to be able to do that is a really positive thing. My husband, who I have to say was a great leader, he had a a super phrase, to stand firm but stay connected. And I really liked that, the kind of, you know, I've got to connect with the people, but I actually have to stand firm with what my message is. Yeah. And I think people respect that, don't they? You know, if you're in a leadership position, of course, there are difficult decisions to be made, but I think there's there's a how in that, how you make those decisions. I think I said at the top of the show, you know, well, it's on the front of your book, Ali, you know, how what you say and do influences the faith. And it, it, I'm a great believer in it's not what you say, it's how you do it. And I suppose with those decisions, it's how you communicate those decisions, how you execute those decisions, not necessarily what the decision is, but people respect that, don't they? If, if it's positioned in the right way. Indeed. Yeah. Something else that I learned from my husband, you know, when I had some tough decisions to make, he said to me, you know, if you can look at yourself in the mirror the next day, and say, I did the right thing, Mm, mm. then you're okay. You know, it may have been uncomfortable, but if you can be true to yourself and you know you've done the right thing, and that was also very sage advice. Yeah, definitely. Well, integrity, the definition is doing the right thing when no one's looking and and having that. (laughs) I love that. But yeah, I, I always remind myself of that, that you do the right thing, even if no one's looking. And it just, yeah. feels better doesn't it yeah um great i think there's something else too in terms of leaders that i've seen you've had great impact and that's that they've all got a level of ambition and drive and it's certainly an internal engine that keeps them going and i think the way we're seeing this now in organizations is around the whole purpose movement you know trying to create meaning in organizations uh, and and making a contribution yeah the why yeah, absolutely. You create followers, create um, tribes, etc., by having a really powerful why, don't you? J- just on the leadership thing, do you think it's changed as well, Ellie, in terms of what is good leadership? Do you think it's changed ever so slightly during the last 11, 12 months, the pandemic? Mm, for sure. I think at the beginning of the pandemic, there was a kind of all hands on, on deck. You know, we, most organisations haven't spent time planning for a situation like this and thinking about how they're going to respond. So many organizations then set up a kind of emergency response COVID team. That's a very different nature of, you know, just what on earth do we need to be doing right now? I think there's also been an increase of telling people what to do, directing people. As we've moved through the whole COVID experience, I think there is an increasing amount of trust now trust that people working from home Mm. will actually be productive trust that people will actually do the right thing so I think we're seeing a shift Uh, and of course 
we're needing to move to a place where we're having to encourage people to be more innovative and set up different kind of conditions for success because we've got to explore different ways in order to survive. Absolutely. Comes back to that creativity piece, doesn't it, really? I mean, it's blown me away in the industry which I align to food and drink, just the sheer level of creativity. It's amazing, really. You know, people talk about bringing their innovation pipeline forward by three, four, five years. I mean, it's amazing. And again, you talk about silver linings, these sorts of things. They're, they're really inspirational when you look at what certain companies and certain individuals have achieved during what's been a really awful, awful time. It's incredible, isn't it? Mm, I mean, there's a there's quite a pessimistic saying of needs must where the devil drives. Right. Uh, but what, what essentially what that means is, you know, make the most out of what's a pretty awful opportunity. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and just to finish a bit about you, Ali, if I, if I may, because I'm fascinating. You know, you, you love helping people, helping people grow and shine. Why is that important to you? Where does that come from? Have you always been of that, I don't know if disposition is the right word, but have you always been that of that mindset? I think that was very much encouraged in me as a child, as I grew up. I came from a very loving and supporting family where my maternal grandmother, you know, was kind of a pillar of the community in the East End of London and was and spent a lot of her time tending to people in the community. My mother did the same kind of thing. And it was a, they were selfless in the way that they behaved. And they were brilliant in the way that they connected with people. And my mother in particular, because of course I spent many years with her, she was inspiring in the way that she did that. And she certainly helped me to to see the power of making a contribution and how motivating that can be. So, you know, it's a reason to get up in the morning. Well, I was going to ask you about your inspiration. You've, you've probably answered it there in, in your mum. But yeah, are there any other inspirations for you personally, either it be other people, things? You know, what inspires you, Ali? I'm inspired by ideas. So I'm a voracious reader. Love to hear other people's perspectives on things. I'm also inspired by conversation. And more and more I'm getting into the field of dialogue and learning about the power of dialogue and some of the people that I'm meeting in that environment inspire me because of their ability to really tune in to what other people are saying, skillful listening. And I've been lucky to have some great bosses that I've worked for and they've certainly been superb role models and they've inspired me too, as well as some people who have inspired me of what not to do. Well, it's light and shade. You've got it. You can't have one without the other, can you, really? Absolutely. Yeah. If you want to have a rainbow, you've got to put up with the rain. Yeah, very true. I know what you mean, though, about, I suppose, interacting with people. There's certain people, and it's, a, it's, it's one of the best bits of my job. I get to deal with some fantastic people. And you sometimes come away from conversations with such energy. And you think, what, what was it about that? But it, just in a conversation, exchanging ideas, some people just give you so much energy, don't they? Yeah. I can't quite figure out why, but it's, it's magical, isn't it, sometimes? One of the things I've noticed, though, is people's willingness to be generous. Generous with their time, generous with their spirit, generous with what they know, and their willingness to share that or to connect you with people. I think that goes a long way. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Two final questions then, Ali. 
what have you learned through this pandemic? What are the takeaways for you that perhaps something you've learned that you didn't know before the pandemic? What's been a huge step change for me during the pandemic is that I've spent longer at home with my husband and my family than I have done in my entire life. And that has been an amazing experience. Clearly, that it's not been smooth sailing for any of us as you know we battle with Groundhog Day. But that has been a real gift. So mm. we've all struggled with that to some extent, but we've all focused on how do we get the best out of this, which has been tremendous. And a silver lining, well, another silver lining for me has been the lack of travel. Mm. A typical week for me would be, you know, getting on a plane, going somewhere, working for a few days, getting on a plane and coming home again, parking my wheelie bag in the corner until the next Sunday and packing it again. And the space that that's created in my life to be able to do other stuff has been tremendous. Yeah, brilliant. And I think it's important to take the positives out of what's been a tough, challenging situation. So it's lovely to hear that, actually, Ali. And, and finally, career advice for anyone listening. I'd love to just get your career advice for anyone who's working their way up through the career ladder, maybe wanting to get into a similar space to you. But yeah, career advice, what would you, what would you tell your younger self, Ali, if you could? Anything is possible. If I think about where I started compared with where I am now, my career has taken such a, a diverse route that I could never have predicted that. And it was about being open to the opportunities that presented to me and having the willingness to give something a go and then reflecting on it and thinking, well, am I any good at this? What could I do with it? Or is there something else that I would rather do and take myself off in that direction? So that would be one piece of advice. I think a second piece of advice would be the importance of building a network. There's a guy I've worked with called Neil Munns-Jones who wrote a book called The Reluctant Networker. Okay. And when he left, I think it was Kingfisher, he spent some time writing this book. He's a deep introvert. And of course, the idea of networking horrified him. But in order to find a new role, he discovered a lot about networking and his book is about that story and how he was the reluctant networker. And, and I, I really believe in the ability to actually build a network that helps you be the very best that you can be right now, but also helps open your eyes to where you might go in the future. And if you're able to connect with those people who can support you in your development, so much the better. That's great advice. And as someone once said to me, Ali, networking's like a muscle. You know, you've got to exercise it regularly, otherwise it loses its strength. And Yeah, like any skill. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, again, with the pandemic, it's really shone a light on how powerful networking could be because, sadly, there's been many, many people displaced from jobs, come on the job market, and that's where your network can really pay dividends so no, that's really good advice, Ali. Well, as always with these conversations, Ali, you inspire me to listen more, talk less. 
etc <laughs> etc et difficult to do on a podcast it is it is but i hope we've got the ratios right here i always learn so much when i talk to you and i'll continue to do so your book is is brilliant thank you for opening up a world that i knew a little bit about in behavioral analysis i can absolutely see where it adds huge amounts of value to companies and also individuals as well your book was fascinating and um, if people want to get your book by the way ali um they can get it from your website um but also am i right in thinking the proceeds it's a not-for-profit idea isn't it all the proceeds go to is it the magic breakfast that's right yeah i mean the book's available on amazon too and all the profits from book sales go to magic breakfast which is a charity that provides food for breakfast for underprivileged school children and that connection was really important to me because I think a healthy stomach feeds a healthy mind. So it seemed to be a good way to complete that circle, if you like. Yeah, I'm familiar with The Magic Breakfast. They do fantastic work. So yeah, anyone listening, buy the book. It'll make you feel good as well because of the charitable donation too. So I should offer up as well, if anyone wants to get in touch with you, Ali, what's the best way? Maybe dropping you a note on LinkedIn, for example, is that the best way if someone wants to reach out to you? Yeah, that would be fantastic. And I'd be very happy to respond. Perfect. Great. Well, listen, thanks for all your time, Ali. I know we're going to keep in touch. So I look forward to speaking to you again very, very soon. Thank you, Jonathan. Cheers, Ali. Thanks so much for listening. I really hope you found this episode valuable. Now, whether you're a person interested in developing your own career to the next level, or perhaps you're a business leader who genuinely believes in the importance of hiring the very best people in the very best way, then you can always get in touch with me via the email links in the show notes. Also, don't forget to subscribe to receive the latest episode as it's released. Until next time, take care.